Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. And on this podcast, we explore questions that people have been debating for ages. Questions about music. And life. We're songwriters, musicians, music fans. And in the 25 years we've been friends, we've been practitioners of the unanswerable. But today, we'll delve into a new question, and we'll talk to some smart people. And we'll come up with the answer. Okay, Clint. What's today's question? Today's question is... What makes the Beatles the greatest band of all time? That's the age-old question. Full disclosure, the Beatles are my favorite band. Clint? Definitely. Okay, before we get into this episode, okay, it's important to say this is such a big topic and so much fun for us to talk about. We need to split this into two episodes. I would agree with that statement. We're so passionate about it and we have so much to say. There is so much to say. There's so much to say. And there's so many people to talk to about this. Oh, I, I can't wait to get in some of these conversations with people. Okay. I want to suggest that you can acknowledge the Beatles as the greatest band of all time and not have them as your favorite band. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, Clint. This question makes some assumptions. One, the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. Two, that we can somehow distill and define what makes them so great. Obviously, we're only going to scratch the surface here, but let's give it a shot. Okay. In past episodes, we've turned to Rolling Stone's list of top 100 artists before. But as a quick refresher, the Beatles were number one. Rest of the top five, Clint, go. Two, Bob Dylan. Number three, Elvis Presley. Number four, the Rolling Stones. And number five, Chuck Berry. In his profile of the Beatles in that same issue of Rolling Stone, another Elvis, Elvis Costello, reminds us that the word Beatlesque has been in the dictionary for a while now. In other words, Clint, they're so definitive that Merriam-Webster gave them their own adjective. Of, relating to, or suggestive of the musical style or technique of the Beatles. And he lays in my ears and in my eyes. Let's start with the facts. Fact number one. They were massively successful. As of 2020, estimated sales of over 2 billion singles and more than 700 million albums worldwide. During a week in April 1964, they held the top five positions on the Billboard Hot 100. They have 16 of the 100 most successful tracks of all time. They reached number one on the Billboard Top 100 21 times, the most of any band. According to Rolling Stone magazine, they released four of the top ten greatest albums of all time, three of the top five. They wrote 21 of the 50 most covered songs of all time. Yesterday holds the title as the most covered song. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Yeah. Now I just know that he was here. 
That's Ray Charles's version, by the way. Fact number two. They did all of this in seven years, really. Their debut album, the one that spawned Beatlemania, again, a word in the dictionary, came out in 1963. That album had songs like Love Me Do. Oh, please, love me do. From Me to You. Just call on me and I'll send it along with love from me to you. She Loves You. She Loves You, Just two years later, on Rubber Soul, they expanded the mold of popular music with tracks like Norwegian Wood, where George is playing a sitar. And just four years removed from She Loves You, Yeah, 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 they released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, viewed by many as the greatest album of all time. And then, 1970, boom. With the release of Let It Be, that's the end of the seven years of the Beatles. The long and winding road that leads to your door. So Clint, let's talk about why we think they're so great. I like to think of this as two different avenues. The first one being musically, why are they the greatest band of all time? Mm. And the second, culturally, Mm. why are they the greatest of all time? So musically speaking, they have three of the greatest songwriters of maybe all time in in the same band. The odds of that alone are impossible, right? The fact that John and Paul grew up in the same town and ended up being two of the greatest songwriters Ever? That's like the big bang of music. It's right. like it's like I'm no religious man, but there's something weird about that to me. Like yes. the, the fact that they're both in the same place. Yes. Um, they defined popular music by being one of the first bands to start writing their own material. Right. And this is a big reason they are so thought of as the greatest band of all time. Right. Previously to the Beatles. Artists would sing other people's songs. Elvis Presley didn't write his own material. The only thing even close to as big as the Beatles was Elvis Presley. That's right. Didn't write a single song. By the way, here's Elvis's version of Yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. So the Beatles are one of the first major rock and roll bands to write their own materials. Yep. They were the inspiration for pop music as we know it now. Right. To own yourself, to write what you want to write, to be your own self. One of my other points is that we got to see the Beatles blossom. Even though it was seven years, we saw their musical progression explode from Please Please Me, which is quite a simple song, not that simple, actually, technically speaking, but sounds simple to the to the layperson. Up through, I mean, once you get to "I Am the Walrus," you're out there, right? Stuff on the White Album, it get it gets weird. The public got to see that whole progression, and there's not a lot of other bands that had that deep of a progression, right? Right. So when you talk about "Please Please Me" being simple, you're talking thematically simple, correct? Not not musically, musically simple. simple. Please, please me, oh yeah, like I please you. Yeah. 
actually that song is not that easy. It's the the beauty of the Beatles for me is that it sounds like you could pick up a guitar and play a Beatles song from your head. As a musician, that's something that I can do, generally speaking. And there's something about Beatles songs that there's always something weird about it. And you're like, wait, is that the sixth? Is that, whoa, they go to that chord? It's so weird. Even though it sounds so straightforward and so accessible, there's always a twist. In fact, one of my favorite stats about the Beatles Out of the 186 Beatles compositions, only 22 are diatonic, meaning they stay in the same key where there's no outlying chord. Okay, so like in music, if you're all in one key, it sounds very easy. It sounds like all the crap on the radio today. No offense to the crap on the radio today. (laughs) But it sounds like it's supposed to sound in your head. The thing about the Beatles is, they used chords that you don't expect them to use. They would change a chord from major to minor in the chorus and not in the verse. Okay, what you're talking about in songwriting terms is called a minor fourth. Yeah. Some examples. You Won't See Me from Rubber Soul. That song is an A. We have lost the time, D. D minor that was so hard to find. Another example, Hello, Goodbye in the key of C. I don't know why, F, you say goodbye, F minor. Another example, Blackbird, in the key of G. All your life, C, C minor. You were only waiting for this moment to arrive. I would say that was Beatlesque. Beatlesque. And they, they, that's exactly what they did. In seven years, they made all the moves that we're still rehashing today. Right. And they did it as young lads... With no musical schooling. Right. Like, they just were absolute geniuses. They also had a great team. Would the Beatles be the greatest of all time without Brian Epstein? Their manager was somehow getting them in suits to look like that. Right. Would we have had Beatlemania without that? And then would we have had Sgt. Pepper without Beatlemania? Right. What about without George Martin? Their producer. It's a different band. So this is interesting. So for people who are casual music fans... You may not know that George Martin had such a huge impact on their music. Soup to nuts. He's the fifth Beatle. He's the fifth Beatle. He also influenced their songwriting. So like a song like Can't Buy Me Love, George Martin said, hey, you should open with a chorus. When that song comes ripping in with... Can't buy me love. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's another thing of the Beatles. They start with the chorus on... Tons of different songs or a variable of the, the chorus. Give me some other examples. Like Help is oh, yeah. the same chords as the chorus, twice as fast. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. It's, it's not the exact chorus, but it right. starts with that theme so that by the time you get to the chorus... You've already heard the song before. Right. That's why they started with a chorus. Because as soon as that chorus hits, you're like, oh, this is the chorus I'm singing. Right? But you heard it as the intro in many cases. Another awesome feature musically is the background vocals of the Beatles are so interesting because they wrote lyrics for background vocals on so many of those tunes, right? Help being a perfect example. Where the background vocal is a written lyrical part that counters yes the main melody when i was 
younger, so much younger than today. I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone, I'm not so self-assured. Now I find a change of mind. This is interesting. This is a point for me, harmony. That Paul and John and George specifically, they harmonize so well. It was something they did without it being the thing they did. Hmm. Like Crosby, Seals, and Nash, the Eagles, like that's what they did. But the Beatles did it in such a way, they did it without you even realizing they were doing something really sophisticated. Just to your point, like these counter melodies. And there's so much to dig into as a listener. Like it's, She's Leaving Home is a, is a perfect, heartbreaking one. Yep. And that's a perfect example of a written background vocal. Right. We never thought of ourselves. Never a thought for ourselves. We struggle hard all our lives to get cheese. Another thing is this tension and ultimately the magic between Lennon's cynicism and McCartney's optimism. Yeah. I mean, it's in each of us, right? The struggle between snarky and being cheery. Even within the same song, some examples. McCartney's We Can Work It Out. I mean, he's literally saying, we can work it out. (laughs) And John Lennon comes in with the bridge... Life is very short, <laughs> and there's no time, right? Life is very short, and there's no time. Right. And then getting better. Paul's literally saying, it's, it's getting better all the time. <laughs> and John comes in and says, can't get no worse. <laughs> to admit it's getting better. A Day in the Life is a great example, right? This yeah. dreamy, ethereal, almost cynical, right? Like dark. A lucky man who made the grade blew his mind out in a car. In a car. Yeah. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights And then gives way to Paul's super lighthearted, optimistic, woke up. Woke up, <laughs> fell out of bed. I love that tension between the cynicism of John and the optimism of Paul. Is it the sum of all parts? Yes, because that is what makes the Beatles the greatest band of all time. They wrote songs together that gave us the whole width of human emotion, right? On Sgt. Pepper as an example, that you could have a song like Sgt. Pepper, but then you could have a song like Within You, Without You, or When I'm 64, that is like, it's like a jazz standard. Right? When I get older, losing my head Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine Birthday greetings, bottle of wine Incidentally, on when I'm 64, he wrote that when he was 16. They recorded it when he was 25. And the song is about being an old fogey at 64. Now he's 78 and he's still playing three-hour-long shows. It's an interesting example of how the concept of age can change in the course of a lifetime. Wow. He wrote that when he was 16. That's incredible. That you could have, for example, on the White Album, you could have Martha, my dear. Martha, my dear, you have always been my inspiration. 
I love it too. Oh my god. And then John's everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Yeah, there's no genre. There's no genre at all. Helter Skelter. Yeah. I will. Obladi Oblada. Blackbird. Yeah. It's it's all over the map. It's all over the map. And in some ways, like that's how people consume music now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They like, were making playlists. They were making playlists. As a record executive, that's not what you're going for, right? right. You wanna you wanna define your brand so easily. And then the sublime B side of Abbey Road is a strung together masterpiece. Yeah. Multiple genres. Blending into one. Blending into one massive, ridiculously catchy, and yet complicated. Right. Orchestral. Once throws away to get back homeward. Once throws away orchestration of these songs like on one level you have the perfect songwriting right john's cynicism paul's optimism their melody chord structures are all genius but then you've got george martin laying on these arrangements of orchestral masterpieces that hadn't really been done and that is a big part of the beatles sound orchestration and recording innovation we talked about brian epstein We talked about George Martin. Another key ingredient in the Beatles' success is Jeff Emmerich, who is their sort of mad scientist, engineer. He's literally innovating techniques and processes to bring their vision to life. Example, Tomorrow Never Knows. John Lennon said, I want my voice to sound like I'm the Dalai Lama chanting from a a mountain. Jeff Emmerich invents something called the chorus effect, which now is literally you can get on any computer. Jeff Emmerich is a genius because he was able to take the thoughts in John and Paul's head and make them a sonic reality using techniques that had never, ever been even thought of. It was such a scientific recording process back then. Oh, the kick drum had to be four inches from the head and the overheads had to be here, here. And that was just it. Lab coats in Abbey Road. They used to wear lab coats and no one could move a mic. It was like these people that would go in and set it all up exactly the same for every session, for every band. And then the Beatles come along. Jeff Emmerich is allowed for the first time maybe to really screw things up as it were. There's so much that the Beatles did that had never been done. First of all, they only toured for four years, right? I guess they did all the Hamburg stuff. But they're done by 1966. So they spent four years in a studio, essentially, creating what we're still doing now. Yes. And defining what we're still doing now. Well, even early on. So In My Life is an example where George Martin plays the piano, what sounds like a harpsichord in the middle. Yep. But to get that effect, he slowed the track down, played it an octave down at half speed. At half speed. (laughs) 
then when he sped it up, it sounded like a harpsichord. I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. I couldn't do that now, you know? Like, that's it's so amazing to even have the idea to do that. So another thing about the Beatles that I absolutely love is Paul McCartney's bass playing. Love. Right? Yeah. I mean, for as great a songwriter and as great a vocalist as Paul McCartney is, his bass playing is incredible. I want to play a couple examples. Okay. This is a George Harrison song, Something. In fact, Frank Sinatra called this his favorite Lennon-McCartney song, (laughs) not realizing that George Harrison had written it. Even though Let It Be came out last, Abbey Road is recorded last. It's an incredible song. One of the things that I think makes this song so incredible is this bass part. I agree. Let's listen to it. Something in the style Now, the interesting fact of Abbey Road bass playing is that Paul would come in alone with Jeff Emmerich after the session and re-record the bass part. To the track. To the track. So he would spend, first of all, they would spend hours dialing in that fat, round McCartney sound that I believe they were mimicking Motown at that point. They were like, how do they get that big bass sound? And so... Well, he was a huge fan of James Jamerson. And when they got it, he would sit and work out the most melodic bass line. I think that's what separates his bass playing. It's not that he's, he's not just playing roots. Let's listen to another one. So this is a John Lennon song from the White Album, Dear Prudence. This bass part is so unusual. Like, who picks up a bass and thinks about playing this part. Right. And yet, anytime you hear that melodic... Something so melodic. Yeah. What would Paul play? What would Paul play? Oh, okay. I have another one. Go. Taxman. Interestingly, I think Paul plays the guitar solo yes. in Taxman yes. as well. Yep. So his contribution to the song was this incredible bass part. But then he also plays this crazy guitar solo. Let's talk to somebody. 
Let's talk to one of my favorite bass players on the planet and your bandmate, Peter Day. Now, we've both been lucky enough to make music with Peter for years and years. He has a particular appreciation for the Beatles and for McCartney's bass playing. Let's call Pete. Let's call Pete. Hello, sir. Lads. Oh, my gosh. This is so fun for us. So Clint and I have been having a conversation about what makes the Beatles the greatest band of all time. We are convinced that you have some feelings about this. I do. I have feelings and I have notions. Well, first of all, let's start here. Big fan of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) First time caller, long time. Um, (laughs) One of the things we've talked about, Peter, is Paul's bass playing. I'm just curious to hear from from someone who knows the instrument so well and and is so thoughtful about bass playing and, and the role that bass plays in song arrangements. What is it that's so special about Paul's bass playing? You are in a unique position to give insight into this because Pete and I were in a a Beatles tribute band called Tomorrow Never Knows. So Pete actually learned all of Paul's bass lines note for note. So lay it on us. I have have been inside Paul's brain and it's a wonderful, wonderful place. (laughs) And it's no joke. One of the things I noticed learning all the bass parts to, we, we started with Rubber Soul and Revolver. Those were the first two albums. And... (laughs) <laughs> the first thing that you notice when you go to learn a McCartney bass line note for note, there's not one verse part and one chorus part, and then those repeat. They're nuanced and they're subtly shifting, and every every time around is a little different. It's different in all the ways that you want it to be, and it's it's subtle, but I did my best to like learn those subtle changes. For example... One of my favorite McCartney bass lines of all time is the bass line to something. It's a deceptively simple bass line for the verse. You know, there's the C to C major seven, C dominant seven, and he keeps, you know, doing this similar sort of figure. Dum, do, 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 dum, 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 do, do, dum, 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 dee, 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 boom, 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 right? So there's your verse part, the B section in something, that bass line, that's one of my favorite moments ever. I will never get tired of hearing that. I will never get tired of playing that. It's just perfect. Then there's this little change in the last verse. He never does it any other time. And it's this little figure, it's him sort of reassuring his friend, George. You know, it's like he answers something, something in the way she smiles, do, 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 do. Something in the way she knows, and all I have to do is think of her. He never does that any other time, and it's... It's perfect. And I had to learn it. And so now I always listen if I hear, you know, someone covering that song, like, are they, are they going to do the part, you know, in the third verse, will they do the bass part? Maybe it, they it, did, maybe they didn't. It's interesting because the way people had to make music back then was they played the whole song. Right, right. right. Like you played <laughs> the whole song. Nowadays, so much of it is copy paste. Like sure. you get your verse part, you're like, boom, 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 boom. And that just wasn't the case back then. And 
shouldn't be the case, probably. Right. It's a very but, it's it's all those little things that make the Beatles worth digging in, and you and you can listen, you know, a hundred times, a thousand times, and and Clint, you know this expression too. We we once worked with a producer who said, you know, you you got to make every part as cool as the coolest part. And that's what the Beatles do. <laughs> it's like every little hook, every part, every drum fill, every bass line is as cool as the coolest part of the song. Okay, I have I have two two more examples for you. One is I think pretty understandably awesome. You think about think about the bass line to paperback writer. That's a badass <laughs> bass line. Boom. <laughs> It's like kind of Paul doing James Jamerson, but Paul. One, two, three, I want to I want to fully get inside that baseline. The other example is one that I think most people might miss or dismiss but nowhere man. It's deceptively slinky and it keeps nowhere man from being a sleepy track. It propels it. It's almost like a dance club baseline but just, you know, way ahead of its time but over this folky beautiful three-part harmony thing it's all syncopated and like it's flowing up and down and it's deceptively slinky. He's as blind as he can be, just sees what he wants to see. You know, it's interesting. John is thought of as sort of the avant-garde one, in part because he marries Yoko, and you know they do lots of avant-garde, weird things, right? But I think it was Paul who's the one actually who was always going to avant-garde art shows. And, right. Right. Yeah. He was going out every night. I want to go back to Paul's bass playing for a second. How much of his sound is the Hofner bass. I know he use, uh, uses other basses. Like, I think he had the Rickenbacker on some, but a lot of it is that Hofner. Thank you for reminding me. That is also on my bucket list. I do need to... How do I not own a Hofner bass? <laughs> but, you know, that was that was kind of a cheapo bass. I, I, he got that, you know, when they were gigging in Hamburg. You know, it was not a high-end instrument. I think the real answer here is, you know, as with any great tone, any any great instrumentalist tone, you know, so much of that is in his feel. It's in his hands. It's in, you know, the way that he played it. You know, the way he made it sing. You you can kind of get that sound, and it's it's old dead flat wound strings, and and then 
play it like a piano player would play it, like a genius songwriter would play it, uh, then then you could duplicate the style. Peter, this has been awesome. You have not disappointed. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Life a big fan, and I always love talking about the Beatles. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Clint. All right, man. Take care. See you, buddy. Okay, so that's part one of our discussion about what makes the Beatles the greatest band of all time. We have so much to say. There is so much to say. There's so much to say. Until next time, this has been another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. 